From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm ATME producer Kendrick Whiteman, recording this in the ATME studio. For this episode, we're going to talk about something near and dear to many of us here at ATME, filmmaking. We first met today's guest during the 2020 Anchorage International Film Festival when she moderated the virtual Q&A for our annual youth film screening after-school special. Lanny Zapoy is a New York-based filmmaker whose feature film, The Subject, has played in festivals throughout much of the pandemic. She hopes to release it in theaters and digital platforms later this fall. Acme producer Zen Rogers spoke with Zapoy to talk about how COVID has affected the film industry, her personal relationships to the stories she tells, and how the murders of George Floyd and other black Americans recontextualized her feature film, which tackled similar themes. They spoke on July 20th, 2021. Hi, Lenny. Before we start, would you be able to give us a brief introduction on who you are and current projects that you're working on? Yeah. Hi, Zen. Thanks for chatting with me today. I'm Lanny Zapoy, a director and producer. I just actually wrapped yesterday a short film set in the 70s and very excited about it. Uh, For it to come to fruition, it was really fun to shoot with 70s stuff. Yeah, that's super exciting. And then what projects were you working on pre-pandemic, like February, March, before everything kind of shifted? Yeah, so there was um, actually sort of, it's going to be shot like a cinema verite, but actually be docufiction piece that I was going to shoot with my mom and her friends. They're all in their 70s and they dance four to five days a week. And so the docufiction part, the part that is true is my aunt lost her husband, my my uncle, and the film would follow her trying to find a new dance partner after 60 years of marriage. And then my mom's part was going to be a little bit more fictional. And so she was going to essentially be in a love triangle with the younger man and his 40 year old girlfriend, which she agreed to play. I was very surprised by that. So we were going to shoot it and, and do all of this. And then the pandemic hit and obviously filming with 70-year-olds in tight spaces, dancing, became something that just wasn't feasible. Yeah, that didn't work out. No. So obviously working on set got really affected by the pandemic in that project, and I imagine others for lots of filmmakers got either canceled or severely delayed. But in your experience, how was not just on set, but pre- and post-production affected by COVID-19? No, I think it was it was a lot. It's also just the connection that you have. Uh, I was pretty much I'm New York based, so I was pretty much in my apartment for a year, pretty solidly. I mean, would go to the grocery store sometimes, but had deliveries. But just even that space, um, the subject, my feature that I mentioned earlier, was in a lot of festivals. It was even in um, the Anchorage International Film Festival. I'm very proud of that. And it was strange because I would have given anything to travel to Anchorage and meet the wonderful filmmakers there or some of the other places, the Bahamas, (laughs) Catalina Island. We had a really lovely tour going of places that I wanted to go. And so not being able to do that 
I, I was really grateful to the places that decided to go virtual because we still had some feeling. We got to meet some audiences, have talkbacks, meet other filmmakers, but it's just not completely the same. Um, and just a month ago, I went to Sedona and got to watch my film play there with a live audience and to see tears in their eyes and to have them want to talk to me about it afterwards was just so edifying. But in terms of, you know, post-production, I couldn't be in a room with an editor sitting close talking about the shots. And as a filmmaker yourself, I'm sure, you know, like part of the fun is having an idea spring out of something and then immediately being able to input it into your filmmaking or talk to the person about it and not sharing that space makes that more difficult. Totally. Totally. So... Like you said, you were able to screen the subject for a live audience at the Sedona um, International Film Festival, which is awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, and so what was that experience of after all of COVID, getting to go back into this live festival audience and watching the film with a theater full of people? Well, what was that experience emotionally like for you? Yeah, it was pretty overwhelming. Uh, luckily, my mom and my sister, who are two of my biggest fans and have probably seen the subject the most times of anybody outside of myself and the editor, uh, they were there. And so for them to finally, for all of us to get to see, because this is my first feature film, for all of us to get to experience that together, they're the first two people, I think, in the credits, that was really special. But what was really great is that the film, the subject deals with a lot of issues that America has have come to the forefront. We've always been dealing with them, but since uh, George Floyd, Floyd's murder last year, et cetera, we've dealt with them more. And so it was really interesting. I think that the audience was ready to engage with the film even more deeply than maybe they would have been if it had screened earlier than when it did. So the Q&A questions were amazing. Everybody wanted the microphone, wanted to talk. And then as I was leaving the theater, I felt a little bit like a rock star must feel at moments. Everybody's crowding around you. I mean, nobody asked for my autograph, but they, some people did ask for photos and wanted to talk more deeply about it. And that was really fun. And then just getting, to be honest, the other part was they have really wonderful parties at the Sedona International Film Festival and getting to go to an outdoor party with great food and a live salsa band count me in i'm ready for that any day yeah so all that just new stuff was super exciting uh before we dive deeper into talking about the subject uh would you be willing to just give a brief synopsis and talk about the film a little bit yeah sure i'd be happy to so the subject follows a really successful white documentary filmmaker as he's about to make his latest project but he's really grappling with the murder of a teen that he caught on tape in his previous film, a film that was very much lauded at the time. But as people have started to rethink it, there are deep questions of could he have prevented that murder? And so it's very topical. It stars Jason Biggs as the documentary filmmaker. And then we also were lucky to be blessed with the cast of Anjanou Ellis, who was just nominated for another Emmy for Lovecraft Country, and Annabella Costa, Cara Patterson, Niall Bullock, and Caleb Eberhardt. So it was just a dream cast to work with. And then, sorry, and then talking about the um, the protests after the murder of George Floyd that happened, you were filming the film before that all happened, correct? Yeah, we filmed the film before it happened, and it was really it was really interesting. Um, so in early 
2020, we got some notice that there were a couple of festivals that were interested in the film, that they wanted wanted it, really liked it. And then we honestly, we got some rejections from some bigger festivals who were like, oh, this is too much. Like they liked it, but thought that it had to, it was too much about what it's about, essentially. So we ended up premiering online at a virtual festival and we were deciding whether to do that or not because, you know, as things were happening in March, people were like, oh, we'll be back in six weeks. Living in New York, I didn't feel that we would be back in six weeks because we were so hard hit by the pan- by COVID that I felt it was going to be longer. And a- actually, we made the decision when we saw the footage of Ahmed Arbery being murdered that... It just felt like this film is part of that conversation and we wanted it out in the world. And so actually during the major protests is the time it it premiered on June 1st of 2020 in a virtual festival. And it was such a tender time. Like we were so excited and elated for it to premiere. And we had a lot of people watch it online and had great questions. But we also didn't want to market it in such a way that it felt like it was cannibalizing people's real lives, because that's not the message of the movie. It would be antithetical, actually, to what we were filming about, you know. So so it was a really, it was interesting trying to thread, like we wanted people to come to the movie and find it, but we also didn't want to do some big splash that felt like it was inconsistent with what we were trying to say with it. So with it... Obviously, like you said, it became much more um, topical after all of those protests and stuff happened. And as the film is about a white filmmaker talking about race and you were a white filmmaker making the movie, with all of this stuff happening, how did your experiences potentially mirror that of Jason Biggs' character? Yeah, it, you know, it's, that's a fantastic question, Zen. Uh, in fact, I don't think I, on all of that, I don't think anybody's actually asked me to drill down into that. It's really important. I mean, the script is written by Chisa Hutchinson, who is a Black woman, um, and we've known each other for a very long time. Uh, but yes, I was constantly thinking about being a white filmmaker while making it, Um you know, not wanting to put too much of my stamp on it in certain ways. Like there were certain scenes. I remember there was this one scene and somebody said, you know, Spike Lee would film it this way. And I was like, I'm not Spike Lee. Like he's a black man with a different experience. And if I tried to to do that first, it wouldn't be authentic to me, but it would be deeply problematic as well if I if I were trying to to do that. So I was always conscious of it, but I think, you know, working with this type of story, the reason it so deeply hit me is I grew up in Memphis in a neighborhood that was half white, half black. And these issues were something that I've thought about and have watched very acutely and tried to work against, honestly, um, this sort of cannibalization of other people's lives and particularly Black people and people of color's lives uh, in service of my own art or in service of white art or anything like that. That's really important um, to me. And so I felt like this film sort of hit at that. And so part of it was in casting Jason was a huge part of how I was entering working. We wanted somebody who was likable and would not just be some really evil mustachio twirling villain, because then it would let other white people like myself off the hook. 
because then I would never ever see myself in that character potentially. I would say, oh, see how awful he's being? He's just terrible. And I've never done that. So I'm fine. And we really, I, at least I did, I really hope that people would come to it and find a little bit of themselves in this film and start to unpack that. And I think that that is the case. We had a man in Sedona in his 70s that said the film really cracked him open, that he had been doing courses around looking at white um, supremacy, white privilege, et cetera, and that he had vowed to do better every day for the rest of his life, no matter how much time he has left. And that was exactly what we were hoping with this movie, that it would you know, spur people to think about it in that way and see themselves in Jason. Yeah, that's really great. So clearly the subject is a film that tackles some pretty heavy issues and looking through your other filmography, that, that seems to be something that you are drawn to. What, what do you think inspires you to want to make films that are like this? What draws you to those sorts of stories? Yeah, you know, I think I think it's true life. I think it's my life. Um, when I was very, very young, there was another pandemic that was really huge and the AIDS pandemic. And I had a much older brother who was diagnosed and I was a little girl in the room. And I didn't realize at that point, I mean, he was about the fourth or fifth person in Memphis diagnosed. Um, it wasn't called AIDS at the time. It was a little bit different, but that's essentially what it was. And honestly, I think that that just changed the way I saw the world. It was just one of those things. And in fact, today is the 29th anniversary of his passing. So I'm just going to give a shout out to Bob right now. Um, I think that that really, really affected my life and the type of work that, um, that I had and loss. I also have a younger sister who's an amazing writer uh, who battled heroin addiction for much of her 20s. She's been clean and sober for for quite some time, is getting her PhD. Her life is really wonderful. So it's a miracle story, honestly. But having that so close as well, just it just affects how you see the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I love comedies. I love being silly. I have one that I'm hopefully going to direct in a couple of years. We'll see. But I just feel I feel really at home in a space that deals with things that hit you in the gut because of those experiences. Totally. And because of those experiences and how close you are to them, do you ever see yourself approaching them in a much more personal level with future projects? Yeah. Yeah. I made this short film um, called, it actually it was wild. It was the last thing I screened right before the pandemic. Like it was screened on March 8th of 2020 New York shut down five days later, four or five days later. And it was dedicated to my brother. And it was uh, 17 things I wish I could tell you since you died. So a little bit more experimental, but really, you know, it, it's a short film, but people were really impacted because I think that most of us at some point have lost somebody that we deeply care about. And it's sometimes it's the little things. Uh, when my brother died, I got a, a Jackie Collins book by him. I'd never read Jackie Collins before, but I did read it. But one thing I really wanted was I wanted his laundry bag. So that just means every time I go and do laundry, I think about him. And that's featured in that short film. It's one of the objects that I talk about. Um, and so, yeah, I think every, anything that we can make that's personal, I think every choice that we make when we're making a film, there is a personal reason why, why we're doing that. Yeah, no, I definitely agree that I think a lot of those little touches, like the laundry basket, can add a lot of real power to films. 
Where, how else do you bring those personal touches into every project? You know, it's, it's funny, the 70s film, uh, I have a lot of family photos that are in that, <laughs> um, mainly because my mom had some photos of my grandparents, and it was a collage, and it was going to take up a big piece of real estate in the living room. So I was like, send it up. So she, she shipped it to me. I had, so yeah, I try and put some objects that you see that are resonant in there, that, that mean something to me. And I also ask, cast to bring something that's personal to them if they if they're so willing and open bring that to set we don't have to discuss it we don't have to but it's there and it sort of helps ground I think all of us in that way beyond that though I think for me in terms of being a filmmaker everything feels personal and an emotional connection so it's taking care of your crew and your cast more deeply than you even take care of yourself, making sure, you know, I'm really big on crafty, for example, which is going to sound really crazy, but I really am. And so I love to have things that everybody that I know that each person really likes, that they really want, and that's going to sustain them. So those sorts of things, I think anything that we can do to, to know more about each other, because I realized in doing the 70 short that the art is really important to me, but I think of filmmaking as community building yeah, and building. Making, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Just making the crew a family. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And that, and that it becomes, it's sort of, there's this line in the subject and it says, and, you know, you can make your movie more than a movie. And that's what I always strive for, is for the films that I make to be more than a movie. Yeah, and then I think it heightens them as films as well when that all ties together. Yeah. Coming up next, Sapoy talks about her installation film, Dispatches a Mist, which documents COVID's effects on life in and around New York City. As life is starting to feel somewhat normal again, Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you're between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska and interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateenmedia.org join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Zinn's interview with Lanny Zapoy. You said you were from Memphis, but you live in New York now, that's correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and so you filmed a project during COVID, Dispatches Amidst, that's very heavily based in and around New York. Could you describe that film? Yeah, I'm happy to. Dispatches the Mist, it's sort of a film that you would show in a gallery, that sort of, it's an installation film. And so where we showed it was in a gallery. But I asked a bunch of friends who lived in disparate parts of New York during 2021, the beginning through May, January through May, to go out and film their neighborhood. Long, single takes, no movement for two minutes or so, sort of largely inspired by Chantal Ackerman's News From Home, which is a film that I really, really love, you know? And and just what she caught, the vibrancy of New York and just the feeling, I return to that film often. I can watch it so much. It's a fantastic film. 
It is, right? And yeah. I thought, you know, I could go out and shoot every neighborhood, but if I invite my friends, sort of this personal thing, then they see their own neighborhoods in a different way than I see it. And one of my favorite shots is, is my friend Kyle Schaefer did this one. He lives um, in Ditmas Park, which is more housing. It seems like it's not part of New York City. There are huge houses. It's really beautiful and in a certain way, like with wide streets and an aisle with trees going down the center. And he went out in the deepest snowstorm and filmed the street. And on there is some random guy walking. Who is this guy? We're watching him. There's also somebody shoveling snow and then there's this cat that just keeps running in the snow and I deeply want to know what happened to that cat you know we watched this cat for a couple of minutes and it and it is so beautiful and what I love about how this film came together is that I was missing New York I was in my apartment for a year and I was missing the sights, the sounds, the smells, the textures of it. So I made a 27-minute film about that and then invited people to come in this gallery space and sit in it and just let go and watch it. And the, it, it's a funny thing that things that are non-narrative per se can still hit you in such a visceral way. People came out with tears when we showed it in May, just as people were really starting to get vaccinated here and just were like, that's the New York I miss. So it became almost like a patchwork tour of the city. That's kind of what I gathered with all these different people putting their view on New York together. Exactly. And then you referenced Chantal Ackerman with another New York film. How do you think this film uses New York as a character in the way that so many of these classic New York films have in the past? Yeah, I mean, New York is a place and it's iconic. In fact, most of the world knows New York what, from so many films. I think what News from Home and Ackerman particularly do is they, I think that that film shows a New York that is very much the siren call for many artists, but isn't always shown on film in that way. Um, that just has an aliveness. Now, there are others that do that, but that one does it really so specially. But New York, you know, it's it's the places that we show. It's the parks, but it's also the people. That there are so many people. I mean, I think for many New Yorkers, sometimes our favorite thing to do is to sit down and just watch the world go by. You're going to see something interesting. Maybe it's that guy that has like, a parrot on his shoulder or, you know, um, there's uh, different iconic scenes. Maybe there's somebody walking an alligator or something like that. It doesn't have to be animals, but it could be, or they're on stilts. You know, there's a film I made years ago and there's a scene where we have a stilt walker uh, just appear in a neighborhood and somebody's like, how are we going to find a stilt walker? I was like, oh, I have a couple of stilt walking friends. Like, that's not a problem. We, I have somebody who can do that. And that's New York, right? Like there's always sorts of other people. So I think that different neighborhoods also talk to each other. And that's also what I loved about Dispatches Amidst because my sister came up, she was in town to see it. And, um, and she said, you know, this makes me want to go and explore that neighborhood because I've never been there. And that is sort of the hope that you see the aliveness in Tompkins Square Park. You see it in Ditmas Park. You see it in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And that you're like, oh, let me go check that out, the people and the place. And then given that this film was shot during COVID, what was the experience of putting it together with the fear of COVID still very actively present, especially in a city like New York that was so 
hit by it. Yeah, you know, it, what was what was interesting about it was shooting it felt very freeing in some ways because you have a mask on and you're just holding a camera like just and you're also not moving it. So people are just doing their thing and the dogs are just being dogs, which, you know, Pasolini says, if you ever have a camera on a dog, that's maybe the most interesting thing you could film. And I completely agree because dogs are just wonderful, joyous creatures. So but, you know, showing it, then it was like, are we actually going to be able to show it in this gallery setting? And so we set it where it showed dozens of times, but only for five people per screening. And it was in a space that also, and this is what made it special and why sort of also my film I made about my brother was also shown very intimately. I didn't want a big audience because I want you to feel the impact. Like to me, where you show it is just as important as how you show it and what the film is. They need to be in conversation with each other. But what was great about Dispatches Amidst is that there was another room at the space and there were these things called sensitive machines. They look like sculptured wire with sensors on them. And depending who was standing near them, they would change lighting and whatnot. You could hug the sensitive machine. You could meditate with it. So it felt like it was in this conversation with these machines. And so you would go and hang out with the machines, and then you would go into this film and and watch it. Um, But we were concerned. So that's why we only had five people per. Um, People needed to be vaccinated to go inside because we wanted to make sure that people had care. It's also in a room that had windows and great ventilation and other things. So we were nervous. But I have to say, seeing it with four other people was pretty astounding. Yeah, it creates a really personal experience between just the people getting to witness it together a small group yeah and I mean I imagine you know like the rock star analogy that I was talking about at Sedona I think that there's something to be said when something is seen by million people a lot of people but then these intimate things where it's five people 20 people can also have power in them too yeah it becomes a very individual thing exactly And so this project obviously was created in a way that was because of COVID and was affected. The whole process was created by COVID. How do you think that COVID-19 has shifted how you make art and film and how it will continue to shape how you make art and film for all your future projects? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one thing about COVID-19, obviously, there are the protocols and that sort of stuff. And many of those were good ideas, even pre-pandemic, you know, probably sharing of food and other things. A lot of people got sick on set. So these sorts of things are probably actually very helpful. You know, I think COVID-19 and the pandemic how has helped all of us, at least I think for me, to be more thoughtful and to be slower at times. Speed can be wonderful, but there is something for letting things breathe, taking your time and making sure that you're doing it well and right by the people you're working with. And sometimes speed and efficiency is goes against that. So I think a lot about it in that way. Um, I also think about in terms of actors being together, like this weekend. There were a couple of reasons, but there's a montage scene. And I had 
come up with a glorious way of shooting it. There were going to be multiple shots per scene, et cetera. And then I landed on, oh, you know, there's a simpler way to shoot this that's effective. It's easier. And it also means the actors are in space together less. And we shot it that way. And actually, I'm going to bet now that when this film screens, people are going to ask me about that and say, like, oh, how did you think that up? And it's like, well, it was kind of necessary, which I think as a filmmaker, probably you can can agree to. Like some of the decisions that people notice on film sometimes are the ones that you just had to do for some other reason. Maybe it wasn't in your original way of doing it. So I think that I think that those things um are going to be very helpful, but it's also pushing me to do a little bit more experimental work. And working on Dispatches of Mist has now encouraged me to do something more, and I, I will share um, at a later date, but something more in the Ackerman vein of News from Home that I'm really excited about. And so I think that that's going to stay with me for a long time. Totally, totally. Do you think that those limitations that were imposed on COVID helped you even be more creative in regards to things like Dispatches of Mist? I think they did. I would have never made Dispatches and Mints, to be honest, without COVID. It never would have happened. And now I'm super proud of it. And it's made me start thinking even more deeply about how we film life and what that means and how that looks and where we're going. And I think about that a lot because as I'm starting to think about color for the 70s film, so just talking to the DP Darren Joe, who's amazing. I was just talking to him about it today. And thank God there are all these like wonderful reference images from the 70s. So who knows, maybe somebody in 50 years will look back at Dispatches at Mits as it's still tagging online and want to make a film about 2020, 2021. And we'll look at that as reference. Um, who knows, maybe. A piece of history almost. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like Dispatch the Mission, from what I've seen of it, it's very verite in how it approaches um, filming New York. Outside of News of the World, what other films inspired you to go in that more verite direction? You know, that, that was the primary one. But to be honest, I thought there are actually films that push me in that direction that... Um, are sort of anti-verite, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, like, the subject got me thinking a lot about, like, as a director, how do you put your stamp on something? I mean, because it's a film where I'm threading, it's a film about a filmmaker, and I'm supposed to be making hit the film he makes in the movie, right? So yeah. am I making that film? Is the character making the film? How are we doing? So it made me think, and then there are a couple other shots in it that make me think about viewpoint. What is the viewpoint? And so I'm very interested in how do I excavate myself as a director? I, I don't know. They have this thing, this is going to be a weird analogy, but bagels in New York, you know, they're very thick and whatnot. And there are a lot of people who will go in and still want to have a bagel, but they're like, scoop it out, scoop out the, the, the real doughy part. And I feel like as a director, I'm always trying to scoop myself out so that what you're really seeing is not me, but the film, though those personal touches exist. So, you know, I mean, when you see somebody who like Quentin Tarantino, who talks about, well, you know what you're going to get when you go and see my film, I'm sort of, and I, and I think that's great and wonderful and works well for him. It just is not my style. So I'm trying to really um, do something different than that. I'm trying not to put myself 
in the it's sort of in the center of the camera, so to speak, that you're feeling. Being um, anti-auteur. Yeah, exactly. I, in fact, I hate that word because yeah. because if you look at the credits, say on the subject, there are 200 people who made that happen, and if you think every single idea in that film was mine, that is crazy. It wasn't. And and the auteur to me is the old system that people bow down and don't bring their own creativity to the picture or there's not that invitation. And that's not what I want. Yeah, totally. I've got to come up with a word anti, because I don't want to be anti this or that, but that's definitely not me. Yeah. You're more like a conductor rather than a controller. You just organize. Exactly. And the best and the best things often come when you're not in control when you're like, Oh my God, why did I not think of that or see that? But if you're doing your job in my estimation, well, then when it happens, when that magic happens, you're ready for it. That's, that's the whole thing. Yeah. To me, that's the beauty of film is that it's such a collaborative medium. You have a thousand voices creating this one piece. Yeah. And I mean, and I, and I love it. And don't get me wrong. I feel like if I, if something I think is not working for the film, like an example, we were having a hard time on the seventies film, getting a car. We had one and then the guy goes to car shows and it got delayed. So we, it wasn't going to work for us timing wise. So they brought a, a film, a car that was like from the fifties and we're like, well, we have this one. And I was, I was like, I can work with a lot of things and I can make just about any car happen, but it's got to have the lines of the 70s. Like if I put a 50s car in the 70s film, it's going to pop somebody out of the film. They're going to be like, wait, why is this kid driving a car from the 50s? Because there's no mention of it. There's nothing. So those those things, I mean, obviously I can make a decision and weigh heavily on, but I was like, I'm pretty flex given our budget constraints and everything else, time constraints of what car it is, just as long as it doesn't look like it's from the 50s. Yeah, so you just you, you're the one who kind of makes the final decisions, but you let everyone make the decision to begin with. Oh, totally, absolutely. Because I mean, I think we're all artists, and if you're working with wonderful people, which I've been lucky to do, we all want to bring ourselves to what we our work, right? Like that's why we've chosen a creative field. That's why we're working so many hours. I think of the Yusuf Nador film a lot, the documentary about him. And the title is, I Bring What I Love. And it might be my favorite title of any film in the history yeah. of cinema. Yeah, no, that's a great title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just speaking on that idea that it's a collaborative medium, and now that so much of film has been changing going back to COVID, uh, especially in regards to releases with cinema and the way that it's even being shot, how do you think uh, COVID will affect the future of the film industry as a whole and how you will? inevitably work in it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. I, I, I think one thing that I'm concerned about is just cost, because it does add a lot of cost to films where budgeted, budgets were already pretty limited. And, and I'm totally down for the cost, but just seeing how much it, it takes out of a budget, you worry about, well, will filmmakers get to make what they want to make? Or even more, will they get to do the films that they want to do? But I think, as we've discussed, like constraints can be really helpful because sometimes, you know, like that 
one of those last little bits of the Hurt Locker when he's walking through like a store and it's like option paralysis because there's so many different types of toothpaste. What do you choose, et cetera? There is something about having constraints. There are reasons that people do those 48-hour film contests where you make it in a short amount of time. You've got a container, a box. And so I think we'll see we'll see more of that. I'm, I am concerned also in terms of cinema being shown in theaters, in terms of is it going to continue to just be things that people think are big blockbusters and then you get everything else? Because with the subject coming out, the only question I get is when are you going to be on Netflix? It's not when can I see it in the theater or whatnot. And, and I really like that communal um, experience. But I also have, through this, have seen so many independent cinemas persevere and still be alive after it. So I'm going to work to be supportive of them in any way I can can be. Um, but I do think it will change just in terms of the nature of how many cinemas there are, et cetera. My goal now, I'm fully vaccinated and other things, is I've made a pledge that over the next six months, I'm going to see as you know as long as protocols are in place. I'm going to try and see a movie in every movie theater, particularly indie, in New York City. So that's the goal: is to hop around and go and see a movie in each one, and and to do that and be more consistent as a movie goer with it. Yeah, to keep that theater experience alive. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, that's all I have in regards to questions. Uh, so thank you so much. Well, thank you. This was really fun, Zen. I appreciate you talking to me. Yeah, thanks a lot, Lainey. Thank you. That was Atme Producer Zen Rogers speaking with filmmaker Lanny Zapoy. You've been listening to Podcast in Place. Use stories from quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme has been composed by Devin Schreikengost and myself, Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth during quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including Rosie Robards and Della Cutchins. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors just like at me. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Kendrick Whiteman. Thank you for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.